Welcome to How Leaders Lead, where every week you get to listen in while I interview some of the very best leaders in the world. I break down the key learnings so that by the end of the episode, you'll have something you can apply as you develop into a better leader. That's what this podcast is all about. Today's guest is Carol Loomis, the former senior editor-at-large at Fortune magazine. There's so much that I admire about how Carol has navigated her career. She blazed her own trail and has done things that no woman has ever done before in the journalism field, which has paved the way for women in other industries too. Not only did she create what is known today as the Fortune 500 list, she's an advisor, editor, and friend of Warren Buffett, who she talks to almost daily and has for decades. She even wrote a book about him called Tap Dancing to Work. What stands out to me the most about how Carol leads is that she's taken one step at a time. She's pushed through barriers and made a name for herself by doing excellent work until she retired from Fortune after working there for 60 years. Every job she had, she made the most of it and climbed her way up the ladder in a man's world. She's an amazing person. There's a lot to learn about her tenacity and drive and her one step at a time approach. I can't wait for you to listen in. Here's my conversation with my friend and soon to be yours, Carol Loomis. Carol, I always like to go back to the beginning and tell us about your upbringing. Where'd you grow up? Well, I grew up in a town, very, very small, a farm town in central Missouri named Coal Camp, not like you're thinking C-O-A-L, but C-O-L-E. And that supposedly is because a man named Cole camped there and froze to death. <laughs> <laughs> so it's it, a thousand people. My high school class had 36 in it. And it was a great place to grow up. I loved it. And I've, I've maintained close contact with it since I've been in New York all these years. Tell me about your mom and dad. What'd you learn from your mom and dad? Well, my mother was a home ec teacher at the high school who came right after college there and met my dad, who had grown up there. My mother went to college in Springfield, Missouri, along with her five brothers at a place called Drury College. My dad, and I've always wondered whether it was just simply because of economics, never went to college. He was a very smart man, and the two of them were smart, and they brought me up. I was an only child. I was brought up in a very uh, conventional way learned to do the right things, I think, and have always thought that I was very lucky in my upbringing. And yeah, now, did you have any jobs as a, as a kid that maybe taught you some things that helped you as you be, became, <laughs> go, to go on and have such a successful career? Well, I think that my first job was picking cherries at a neighbor's tree. And I'm not sure that the neighbor made out well because I love cherries and I ate so many that I think it may, might not have been economically good. <laughs> uh, then when I was in high school, I was hired by the local bank there was only one, to work part-time. And I learned a little bit about bank accounting, which I think probably was useful to me uh, later. Those were my two main jobs uh, when I was in high school. When you were doing the bank accounting in high school, is that something that you really liked and took to? Well, I did really like it. And I knew the people who ran the bank were also people I'd known because everybody knew everybody else in this little town. And I discovered then that I did like working. It was better than cherry picking. You mentioned that your father didn't go to college. Right. And, but you did go to college. Did he really want you to go to college? And was he that did. a big priority to your mom and dad? Oh, and well, it was just taken for granted that I was going to go to college. I had good grades and 
everybody just assumed I was going to go to college, and I, they assumed I was going to go where my mother had gone because that's where all of her family had gone. So you went to Drury. I went to Drury for two years, but I always had in mind that I wanted to be in journalism, and here was the best journalism school in the country at the University of Missouri in Columbia. So I transferred there for my junior and senior years. Well, that's how you and I got to know each other because we both went to the University of Missouri. Well, thank God for you. You're doing doing the school (laughs) proud. That's great. You know, Missouri does have a very acclaimed reputation for a school of journalism. Did that help you get your first job out of college? And what was it? It absolutely did. A man who had graduated from the University of Missouri came back to look for an assistant. He was running a house organ for the Maytag Company, a magazine for Maytag dealers around the country. And he came down and took three of us back in a private plane. Believe me, none of us had ever been in a private plane. To Newton, Iowa, where Maytag was then located. And we were interviewed up there. I did get the job. But I've always thought I was helped by coming from such a small town because Newton, Iowa was not big either. It was 14,000. And I'm sure they sat in that room and said, she'll be happier here than those other two. (laughs) 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 They were from bigger towns. Almost everything was a bigger town. You know, when you look back at that, I'm sure you learned something. What advice would you give young people today on what you should do to take a job, why you should take a particular job? Well, I certainly think it needs to sound interesting to you. I I don't think that taking a job because one paid a little bit more than the other, but you didn't think you'd like that as much. I think that you want to get someplace that you think you will like. And as a matter of fact, I think if you don't like it, you should start looking for some other place. And then I I certainly think you should be totally honest uh, in your job interviews. Put on no airs. Just tell it like it is. If they don't take you, they don't take you, but you hope they will. Yeah. Now, what did you learn in your first job at Maytag? What was the big learning that you got out of that? Well, the first thing I I learned, I worked for for a man who ran the, the house organ called the Maytag News, and he was a good teacher. And so I learned how he did the work. And then six months after I went there, he quit. So here, here the company was without an editor and... There I was, his assistant, so I became editor of the Maytag News six months after I had been there. And mainly, well, that involved two things. Once a month, I would travel someplace in the United States to interview a successful Maytag dealer. And I took a camera along with me, a speed graphic, and took all the pictures. So I came back to Newton completely prepared to do an article about this person. They were all men. I don't think there was a single woman among the successful Maytag dealers. And then I had to, uh, it was a 24-page magazine, and I had to put it together. And believe me, six months out of college, even with a good education like I'd had at the journalism school, that, that was a challenge. And I'm sure I made some mistakes. I've never gone back to make a total look at all I did. But anyway, it was a great experience for someone to be suddenly thrown into that and to have to do it. So you interviewed all these successful Maytag dealers. Right. If you could give one big trait that you learned from these entrepreneurs, because right. they put their own money into building, taking that franchise and taking right. it forward, what would be the single biggest trait you saw the most successful entrepreneurs? I think it would be the good service, the service they provided people who had bought a Maytag from them, then had a repair problem, needed to get it fixed. The dealer was going to be the man who fixed it. 
and the good service they supplied to those dealers, the word of mouth got around. First of all, Maytag was a high-quality appliance. And then if you had a dealer who provided great service, you were really set. And washing machines are so important to, yeah. to the normal family. Um, and dryers, they became a dryer manufacturer also. Maytag thought you were going to be there forever since you were moving into the big city from that small <laughs> town you grew up. Yeah. So, But you moved on. What, what made you move on to your next job? And what was that job? Well, I had always wanted to work for a big-time magazine. Almost all the big-time magazines are located in New York. So I thought I wanted to be there. The one exception, and that later came back to be very important right now, the one exception to that big-time magazine company was Meredith, located in Des Moines, Iowa, 30 miles away from Newton. But I wasn't interested in working for a women's magazine. I wanted to work for Time Inc., for Time or Life or Fortune, which I learned a little about when I was working in Maytag because I had a boyfriend who read Fortune. And I thought it was very important for me to read Fortune so I could learn why he was so interested in it. And I added it to my list of time and life as a place I'd like to uh, work. And I also read a very good speech by a Fortune editor that had been printed in a trade publication. So I never gave up the thought that I wanted to go to New York. And finally, I, I had a fish or cut bait and I came up to New York on vacation for a wedding of a friend of mine in Massachusetts. And I set up three interviews with Time and Life and Fortune. And Time and Life were very polite, but they didn't want to hire me. The Fortune woman who was filling in for her boss did want to hire me, but she said, I don't have an opening. I really don't have an opening. If you go back to Maytag, I will be in touch with you. And I thought, oh, is this is really going to happen. But about six weeks later, she wrote me and said, I have an opening now, next time you're in New York. And that was really funny. Next time and I'm in New York. I've only been in New York once <laughs> in my life. And I got that uh, letter on a Thursday. Friday morning, I called her and said, can I, be, can I be at your office on Monday morning? And she said, fine. So I got there on Monday morning and I was hired. And she later told me that if I hadn't jumped on that opportunity and said I'll be there right away, that I might not have been hired. So what advice, Carol, can you give people on why you should change jobs? Why should you move from where you're at, in your opinion? Well, I realized that the Maytag job, even though it was a, a very good learning experience, was not something that maybe years out that I was still going to be wanting to do. And... Also, Maytag, like so many other companies, had not at that time recognized women as managers. So though I was in a position where the editor of this publication would normally have been in, invited to be a member of the management club, I was one of several women who were never invited to do that. So that was a real roadblock, though that I didn't recognize it fully. When I look back, I think that must have been a little back in the back of my mind. And I had always wanted to be in New York and work for a big-time magazine. So you just have to pick up and go when you think it's the right thing to do. So you really wanted to make sure you, you were going to pursue your future, something that you could believe in, where you could grow. You wanted to be in an environment where there was a level playing field. And then you wanted to pursue your passion to get to a place you've never been before and see the world, basically. That's, that's you know? exactly right. Yeah, uh -huh. that's, that's good advice for anybody to take. Now, when you joined Fortune, 
Tell me about what that was like. And did you have an episode in your career that kind of catapulted you forward? Well, Fortune, like the rest of the Time Inc. magazines, had been set up in the way that Henry Luce thought the world should be run. Henry Luce being the founder of all of these publications. And that was that men wrote and women helped them. So Fortune was like that. So I went into the entry-level job, which was what we then called a researcher, though the title is more like being a reporter. And I was assigned to work with writers on stories. The big stories were called middle-of-the-book stories, and they usually took about six weeks to do, which is a long time in journalism. And so I would be assigned to this senior writer, and he and I would go every place that the story demanded that he go, like we, I went out to California. I remember that we interviewed Desi Arnaz. I would take notes. The reporter always took notes. And the writer would ask all the questions. And they would turn politely at some point in the interview to the reporter and say, would you like to add anything, Carol, any question you have? And, and sometimes you would have one, and sometimes it'd be a really good one. The funny thing about all of this is that it was not something that bothered me at all that it was women doing these jobs and men, I was learning so much from sitting with these senior writers and seeing how they ask questions that I thought, and I still believe I had a, a great job. I was traveling everywhere, Chicago, Detroit, wherever the company was based, I was going there and I was learning so much. I had no false opinions about how much I knew. So everything was a little bit of a revelation to me. And then I was promoted and very quickly, actually, to be assistant chief of research. So the woman who had hired me picked me as her assistant, and that was an administrative job. And then one day in a meeting, when they said, well, we don't have a writer to do businessmen in the news, I picked up my hand and I said, I think I could do that. And so they let me do that businessman in the news one time. And then not too long after that, we started an investment column. And I had demonstrated sort of that I was interested in investments. So I was called into my managing editor's office and he said, we're starting a, an investment column. We're going to need two people working on it. And I would like you to be the second writing it. And I, I said, what women are not supposed to say, I said, but women don't write. <laughs> now, how crazy can you be? And he said, well, Maybe we made a mistake about that. We're going we're gonna to try it. <laughs> <laughs> that is great. So here I was. I'd gone there in 1954, and it was 1962. So eight years after I'd been there, although I'd had a very nice administrative job, and I had not been impatient all that time, whereas today I think that people my age in their 20s are much more impatient about not moving up. I felt all that time that I was learning. I don't know what I would have done if I'd say it had been five years more and I was still being assistant chief of research. Maybe I would have said, this isn't enough. I don't know. Tell me about your involvement with Fortune 500. When I was assistant chief of research, we actually started it one year after I got there. But then I was promoted into this administrative job and there was nobody to sort of watch over it. And my boss, a woman who was very great in hiring, she didn't much like numbers. Well, the uh, Fortune 500 is all numbers. 
And people had to make decisions as to, well, is this the right number or is this slightly different one that we should be using? So I became the overseer of the Fortune 500. And that was a wonderful thing for me because I immediately knew I liked accounting and everything about the Fortune 500 has to do with uh, accounting in a kind of minor way. And so it was just great. So that added to my knowledge and I'm sure was very helpful in later getting me the writing job. Now, what do you think really distinguished you as a business journalist? I'm not even sure that I should be given that accolade. To the extent that I brought something different to the table, it was that I was never satisfied at feeling like I had not learned the complete picture. I really just wanted to do one more interview so that I could fill in this gap in what I had. So I was trying very, very hard. Like if I had been lucky enough to be interviewing you about Yum Brands, you know, I would have sought to do 10 interviews. I always asked the CEO for the first interview and for permission to talk to the people who worked with him afterward. And then I would ask him to let me come back because I would have learned so much about the company, I would have realized I should have asked questions that I hadn't. And I liked explaining complicated things to the reader because the reader often doesn't get his hand held well enough. That was uh, an expression used at Fortune. The editor, managing editor would say, I think we need to hold the hand of the reader here just a little bit and do some explaining that would bring the reader to the right understanding of what the problem was that was being talked about. So I think my like for numbers and my interest in explaining complicated things, those are the only two things that I would think would be different. You know, even though men wrote and the women did the research and all that, it seems like Fortune at the time was a fairly progressive company with females. You had a female interview and hire you, and you said other people developed you. you know, so we've come a long way, but it sounds like Fortune was leading the way, at least in the journalist field, well, in terms of how to, how to develop women. That is right to a certain extent. Also true of time and life that the women, and it was women who interviewed me, all three of my interviews were with women. And it's kind of a human resources job. And to yeah. this day, human resources is a kind of a women's job right. sometimes. Yeah, that's true. That's true. You know, you've talked a little bit about what it's like being a woman as you were coming up. And I understand that you sued the economic club because they wouldn't let you come into the club for some awards banquet or whatever. Talk a little bit about that. That's kind of hard to imagine these days. Well, I, I know what I think we're talking about 1970. And that was a big year for women, by the way. But what happened was that the Economic Club of New York, which had monthly black tie dinners at which some famous person, let's say Henry Kissinger, spoke and he was uh, questioned by a member of the Economic Club, they called Fortune and asked if we would like to send someone as a press person to cover the meeting. And an assistant got this call and came around and said to me, would you be the person? And I said, yes, I think I would. And went back and called and said, it'll be Carol Loomis who is coming. And the man on the other end of the phone said, no, it won't. Women are not allowed. Well, that got me on the phone to the man and said, well, I'm the logical person. The president of the New York Stock Exchange was the speaker that time. I was working on a story on the New York Stock Exchange. It would have been totally illogical for any other fortune person to go to this dinner. And this man said, well, our difficulty is 
we don't want to have any frivolous little Smith girls who are looking for a free dinner with 1,200 men in black tie. Well, I said, I think his name was Eckerberry, if I remember. I said, Mr. Eckerberry, I didn't go to Smith. <laughs> that was my joke. So he, he let me come, but he wouldn't let me sit. I had to sit on the sidelines. He wouldn't let me sit at a table. So I sued. I sued in the New York City courts, and I lost the suit because it was a private club, and they were entitled to have any rules that they wanted to. But shortly after that, they did begin to allow women, and I'd been asked to join, but I turned them down. <laughs> you have a real strong courage of conviction inside of you. You're tough as nails. I can see behind <laughs> that, that sweet smile of yours. You know. What gave you the courage, really, to... You know, in this kind of environment where women are just starting to come of age, so to speak, in terms of like getting the do that they should do and the opportunities they should have, what made you have the courage to make the waves of actually suing the establishment like that? That's a big move. Well, I guess it is, but it just seemed to me so totally irrational of the club. What they were doing was an impediment to my career. Because if I couldn't go to this dinner where, as a man could, obviously I was a little bit secondary to this fortune man who could go to the dinner. And it just struck me as totally unfair. It didn't even cross my mind that I wasn't on the right side of this. I didn't know whether the suit was going to work, but I felt better. And I believe that it made the move because they, they realized that it, there was no logic to what they were doing. We'll be back with the rest of my conversation with Carol Loomis in just a moment. When I hear Carol talk about tackling the most difficult assignments and simplifying the message for the reader, it reminds me of a conversation I had with Marvin Ellison, the CEO of Lowe's, because he too is one of those that always takes on the most difficult assignment. The best way to move forward is sometimes to take assignments that no one else wants, that no one else is attracted to, that people look and frown upon because they don't think that there's a pathway to success. But when you don't have sponsors, when you don't have an Ivy League education, when you don't have mentors with influence, results matter. And so I'm taking a lot of those tough assignments because I want to demonstrate that I can lead. If you want to be a leader who takes on tough challenges, you're going to learn so much about how to do that well after listening to this conversation. Go back and listen to my interview with Marvin Ellison, episode 28, here on How Leaders Lead. What advice would you give to aspiring female leaders? I would say that they should try to run their divisions or their companies or whatever they are with the same rules that men run them. Many of them have had mentors or people they looked up to in their careers. And I would think that all women, just like all men coming up, should be trying to learn what works in running a company, what works in running a division. And since I've never done either one of them, I think my advice about this is limited, but learning can never be dismissed as not important and taking on something that's bigger than you've got right now. The other thing I know that is a great trait of yours, you were able to really identify new things that were going on in the market. And you actually coined the phrase hedge fund with one of the articles that I know you wrote. I forget what the headline was on that. I it was about A.W. Jones. And I, I really want to say in here 
that I have never been clear that I really did coin that. I'm often given credit for it. <laughs> and certainly I would take credit for the fact that we wrote a story about this man, uh, Alfred W. Jones, because he was running one of the first hedge funds, not the first one, but one of the first ones. He was making more waves than anybody else had ever made in this. He actually had worked for Fortune once as a writer. He was not widely known, but his fund that did hedging was growing and attracting new investors all of the time, and he'd never been written up. And a friend on Wall Street told me, you ought to do a story about Alfred W. Jones, A.W. Jones. And I looked into it and found out he was really right. And that story attracted a great deal of attention in the investment world. The headline for the article was the Jones that oh, nobody that keeps, keeps up, up with, with <laughs> which is great. Did you write that headline or well, somebody I, else I, did? I did suggest it. That's but. a great one. That, that is really good. You want to re read that. And, and, you know, whether you coined the phrase hedge fund or not, you talked about hedging. And after that article, that whole category really took off and people like George Soros got into that type of investing. So right. you, you might have had something to do with uncovering a different way to think about investment through that well, article. Well, and people have told me that they took a copy of the article and, and used it as a model for their own funds because it, it really sort of spelled it all out in a way, again, that I, I like to do. Now, the other thing that I have learned is you've been critical about leaders setting these big, audacious performance targets and, and, you know, and then not necessarily delivering. You know, what advice would you give leaders in terms of setting performance targets for their team or their company? The businessman that I admire the most, Warren Buffett, never has quarterly meetings. He just makes no claims as to about what he's going to do. He just does it and reports it. But if I were running a company, I would not have quarterly investor meetings. It would be a real step away from what most companies do. But what happens is so often that management set a target and then they get close to that time when they have to report and they haven't made that target and they do things that are really things that aren't good for running the business but they think they have to satisfy investors. That's just a bad system. And, and you took a stand on that in, in your article and you laid that out and talked about how, you know, people use accounting to not maybe potentially cook the books or to make it look a little bit better than it really is. Well, that gave you, I'm sure, a pretty strong reputation as being a tough <laughs> reporter. So what do you think the big, you know, so let's say the CEO gets a phone call from Fortune that Carol Loomis wants to interview. What, what do you think went through that CEO's mind when they got that phone call? First of all, it took me a long time to build up a reputation where anybody would even know who I was. But I think that in some cases they would say, well, we're just not ready to do a story right now. If the subject is important enough, you cannot say, okay, you have to go out and do the story. I did that with KKR, first time I wrote about KKR. They said no. Uh, Henry Kravis and George Roberts agreed to have their picture taken, and we put it on the cover, but they would not give me any interviews. And I said, well, I don't care. I'm going to do a story, and I did a big story. And many years later, they came back to me and said, we think you, we've got another story about KKR. Would you be interested in doing it? <laughs> <laughs> That was a surprise. <laughs> a friend of somebody said, you mean you went to Carol Loomis and asked her to do a story? Because, uh, you know, that, that was pretty un unusual. It doesn't usually work that way, does it, Carol? <laughs> Not with your objectivity, which is great. 
You know, I also know in 1980, you were one of the panelists for the debate with uh, Ronald Reagan and John Anderson. You know, what was the favorite question you asked and why? I don't think I can remember the exact wording, but I asked uh, Ronald Reagan. I was the first questioner, and I asked him about what he was going to do about inflation. And he gave a sort of non-answer because inflation was the hot subject at that time. I thought that was the right thing to be asking about, and it was but I didn't really get a full answer, I would say. <laughs> he kind of moved to another subject. Yeah, yeah, in just, right? sort of well, right. that was a big issue back then. That was double-digit inflation. Oh, you know, I remember it was, it was awful. That was right. I remember uh-huh. those days. That was tough. It was very tough. Now, you've also developed a famous friendship and partnership with the person you said you admire most, yes. which is Warren Buffett. Yes. How did that come about? It's a simple story involving my husband. My husband always had had, before he retired, jobs on Wall Street. And way back in 1967, I think we're talking about, he was working for a company called Faulkner, Dawkins & Sullivan, which was later one of the companies bought by Sandy Weil. He bought many companies. And John had, my husband, John Loomis, had a big territory that covered the Midwest, including Nebraska. And he read something about Warren Buffett, a very little thing in Business Week. He said, I think I ought to see this guy. And he wrote Warren a letter saying, I'm going to be in Omaha on Monday. Could I please come in and see you? Warren has never gotten his ideas from securities salesmen. So the idea that he would say yes was amazing. But he did say yes. And they got along. They had lunch. And about a month after that, and I'm sure that John told Warren that I worked for Fortune. And I think that Warren was interested in that. And so about... 30 days after that, let's say, Warren and his wife, Susie, first wife, came to New York and invited us to have lunch. And that was the beginning of a friendship. Uh, We were invited to a conference held every two years of Warren Buffett's friends. That's the only way you can describe it. And that was just great. So we became friends. And then in 1977, Warren had decided to improve his annual letter. And he sent me a first draft. And he said, Do you see anything that you might suggest would be better? And my joke is that I said, well, I think you should change this A to a V. (laughs) (laughs) That was all I could, I wasn't bold enough. But I became his editor and have been his editor now for all that time. Still am his editor. My winner becomes very busy because I do help some on the annual letter, though the letter, the content of the letter is entirely his. And when people refer to me and I hear them and say, you're the writer of the annual letter, just last week, a friend that you and I would both know said, oh, good job. And I knew he meant writing. I said, you know, I don't write that letter. I edit it. (laughs) There's a huge difference. The content is all worn. Well, everybody looks forward to that annual report every year because he puts the world in context, his businesses in context, and it's absolutely fantastic. And it's very, as you'd say, it holds the hand of the reader. He does. And, you know, sometime I do help with that. Sometime I'll say, I think you just need to explain this just a little bit more. Because he takes it for granted that certain expressions, I wish I could think of a good one, are understood by people. Whereas his sister, whom he claims that he writes to, probably wouldn't understand that at all. I heard somewhere that Warren Buffett said that he he called you 90% of his working days. 
<laughs> and that you were that close to him and he got so much good advice from you. Can I ask what you guys would talk about? What would be some of the things you'd talk about or a typical conversation? Well, I, I think it would be ordinarily be the business news of the day, which we were both very interested in. And if there'd been something that had occurred that day that uh, was in the papers that was surprising, or maybe it was about AIG, which we, we were both interested in AIG. If I had a question about work, that I thought he could be informative and helpful on, I would ask him, and sometimes he would not. And he would sometimes tell me about something he was going to do that was very unusual. And if I thought I w- if I was surprised or anything, I would say, oh, why are you doing that? <laughs> so, <laughs> so you just are a good sounding board for each other, it sounds it, like. Exactly it, it, went, right. it went both ways, which is great. I, I also saw that where, or heard where he said you had a very nice way of telling people that they were full of baloney. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so how do you do that? I'd like to, can you tell me how to tell somebody they're full of it, you know, in a nice way? What's your trait that you do there? <laughs> Not sure that I really have that skill, but um, I would say that Warren is very good at that himself. And he learned something from Tom Murphy, whom both you and, and I know. Uh, Tom has said, you can always tell that guy off tomorrow. so you don't have to tell him off today and you can think about it and maybe you'll never have to tell him off that's a great line some great wisdom there now you also wrote a book about warren buffett called tap dancing to work yes and i remember meeting with warren myself i had opportunity he said i you know i love my job i tap dance to work you know and it it, that's a fantastic title i just love that what would you say the top three things you learned from Warren Buffett that, you know, everybody ought to think about as a leader? If I would jump to some conclusion that maybe I didn't have the facts to back it up, he would say, but you know, had you thought about this? So I, I think he gave me a little bit of an education and how to arrive at my conclusions slowly. I just read a friend of mine, a contractor who died. He said, you measure twice and then you cut. So we're talking about a piece of wood or whatever it is. That's an awfully good expression for everybody to have. To do the thing that really matters to you well before you move on to something else. I can't think that uh, Warren is always, uh, I would say he would have said be conservative about things because he is conservative in, in the way he approaches business particularly on price. <laughs> he's famous for not overpaying. He just walks away if he is if he's being asked to overpay. That's a very good discipline to have. Now, what do you think the, the state of journalism is today? The world is very difficult right now for print. I see the New Yorker and Atlantic Monthly doing a good job and keeping their audience. I see Time Magazine, which I still like very much, working hard and putting out great stuff but I don't know right now whether it's helping them or not. I see the New York Times having changed a lot, and I, I feel that practically all of its changes are to the um, benefit of its readers. And local newspapers, a very difficult environment uh, for them. It's a tough world out there for print journalism. What do you think of the impact of social media, and how do you think that's changing the game? First of all, I do not own a smartphone. So you, you can say I am not exactly it hasn't an expert. has changed the game for you. <laughs> <laughs> I deplore all the Twittering. Social media has obviously changed the game. And every day we're reading about something that in which ways it has. We read about also about Facebook 
trying to face up to uh, its impact and things that aren't going right on that front. It's not going away. Social media isn't, but I'm I'm sorry it exists. I mean, that's my, my fight. Because it's too superficial? Well, I do think it's superficial, and I, I think it takes people away from more substantive kind of uh, reading, and a lot of it isn't fact-based, and you're picking up things that aren't true. It's very hard to say social media is good. Do you think it's good? Do I think it's good? I, I think it gets people a voice. Maybe they might not otherwise have, mm-hmm. you know, but I think anything, it's like when it's done to an extreme, mm-hmm. you know, I think you, it can be a problem. Bad news that isn't true can spread very fast. Yes, I think when I think of journalism, I think objectivity is key. And what you've really tried to point out, I think, in, in this discussion is the, the importance of going deep on your subject and doing your homework and making sure you get the facts right. And, right. you know, I, I think that isn't necessarily the case today. I think there's a lot of what I would call confirmation bias. You go to the news, it's going to confirm whatever you believe. That's you, very true. Do you, do you agree with that? I, absolutely true. I, I, I myself do that. Yeah, I remember when we, we were growing up and whatever, Walter Cronkite came on or David Brinkley or whatever, you kind of assumed that what they were doing was giving you the facts and nothing but the facts and whether that was right or not. Yes. That's kind of what we thought. I think today everybody or the consumer of media looks at it and says, you know, I'm not sure I'm getting the straight skinny. It's one-sided. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And we need more uh, Carol Loomis's in the world and I hope we can get them. You know, Carol, you've done so many things and I know you're humble, but what recognition have you received in your career that meant the most to you? I think when people look back on my work, I actually believe that the most important thing that I have done is edit Warren Buffett's annual letter because he has such a huge, huge audience. And I believe that what I've done there has been important in getting that presentation. I once used an analogy about Warren, which is that he's like a star basketball player who knows everything about how to play basketball, except he never quite learned how to dribble. So I help him dribble. That's my editing uh, is, is uh, straightening out grammar sometimes and things like that. You know what you do and you do it extremely well. And you obviously you worked, you traveled, yet I know you're very close to your family. You got a wonderful family. And how did you manage and balance such an intense career, active career into it every day and, and balance the family life? Well, that's a good question, uh, David. It, it really is. I ran into uh, what confronts all women who work. First of all, I have a friend at our golf club, Wingfoot Golf Club, who tells me, I, don't, I didn't know this, that when I joined there in 1967, we joined there in 1967, I was the only woman who worked. Okay. I didn't know that till she told me that. So I was coming up in an era where in 1961, when I graduated and then went to Fortune in 54, people like me who then had a family were very rare. And I I ran into the problems of of doing that. I had a wonderful caregiver who took care of the kids. If I hadn't had that, I could never have made it work. But I still had the balance. I had to go to school conferences. I, when I got home at night, I had to worry that my caregiver didn't have to cook. I had to worry about getting dinner. And finally, I went, when I had worked for a while and, and had a little bit of a a record of producing good stories, I went into my boss and I said, I can't work 12 months a year. Would you let me have three months off? 
And if you can't do that, I will quit and I will work freelance. Uh, but I really need these three months in the summer off. And I got that. And that was at a time when for a woman to have asked for that would have been very, very unusual. And I got it. And I had that all of my career after I did that. And that was, I could get my life back kind of synced in the summer when I didn't have to uh, work. But my, my kids would tell you that I was always there when it was important. <laughs> you know, when I needed to be there, I was, I was there. And my daughter, Barbara, and my son, Mark, both of them wonderful people, uh, have both grown up into television. They both have television jobs. And I think I, I made it work but it was very, very hard. And, and people to this day, I don't think, give credit to women who do work and hold down an important job, how hard it is to balance that. Carol, you were the longest tenured employee at Fortune, 60 years, 60 years. And you were great at what you did. How did you avoid all the people coming to you with new ideas for your career and avoid the grass is greener on the other side of the street? Well, first of all, I didn't have any aspiration to rise to managing editor. Now, I had a husband who had a really good income on Wall Street. So I didn't need to worry economically about whether my salary was going to be important to our family. That was extremely important. But I knew that I was a better writer than I was going to be as a managing editor but if you wanted to increase your salary, you, you really had to rise to managing editor or even think about being editor-in-chief because one of my managing editors became editor-in-chief at Time, Inc. And so I was in the job I was suited for. And I liked it. And I had my time off in the summer <laughs> eventually. And I didn't want to rise. I was given opportunities to edit. They came to me and they said, how would you like to edit for the next three months? And I recognized it as an attempt to make me an editor rather than a writer. I think I would have been a very bad editor. I had a very clear vision of what I needed to do. I had two kids. I needed that three months off. It was all important. And my husband was pulling in his good salary. How lucky can you be? You know, you, you had a, a very long and successful career. You worked at Fortune for 60 years, which is phenomenal. How do you stay fresh and current and on top of things? I mean, wh what did you do? What were your tricks of the trade on that? First of all, you were never forced at Fortune to do a story if you didn't want it. So you were always accepting doing the stories that needed to be done, derivatives uh, was my best example. And in 1994, when nobody knew anything about derivatives outside of the trading floors, one of my editors came to me and said, how about your next story being on derivatives? And I said, oh, God, I don't want to do that. I, I mean, that's, that's, oh, I don't want to do that. She said, well, it's, it was a woman. And she said, well, you know, this is a very important topic, and it's your kind of thing. So I finally said, okay, I'll do it. And it was it was one of the hardest stories I've ever done in my life. But when I go back and read it, I like it. And when I was close to being forced to do stories, like one I had was asked to do on white-collar crime at a time when I really didn't do it, I did it and then got back to things that I really wanted to do. And Fortune was wonderful in that we didn't have beats. Now, I did a lot of stories about banks, but I didn't. I went off and did stories about other strange kinds of things. So you kept current basically because you were constantly going with the flow of the news and what was going on and, and staying up top. And Today you'd be doing a story on Bitcoin and cyber currencies. Oh, I know I would. And now, I, I mean, if you I, could I don't explain understand. that, I mean, I you would be. I can't explain. I mean, you'd be a genius, <laughs> even a bigger genius. Right. 
Right. And what a learning experience. Yeah. You were always being asked to take on something new. Yeah. Oh, that was just wonderful. You know, Carol, you mentioned your impact and recognition. Just the, the belief that you had a lot of impact with helping Warren with those letters. I, I would just say in closing this out that I think basis, my homework and getting to know you, I think you had tremendous impact as a trailblazer for women. You think about how you rose in a man's world, how you took on the establishment when you needed to take on the established because it was the right thing to do, how you did lead the way even in driving balance. I, I think you've, you just had an enormous impact and this country's blessed to have a leader like you. And I thank you so much for being on this podcast. Well, it's been wonderful, David. Thank you very much. Wow, talk about an incredible career from an incredible leader. There's so much we could break down and discuss here, but I just want to take us back to that seminal moment when Carol got her first opportunity at Fortune. She wasn't just sitting around waiting for luck to happen. She created her own luck by taking initiative. And I want you to do the same. This week, to help you develop as a leader, I want you to make a bold move. Like Carol, you might have to even jump on a plane to New York to take that big meeting. Whatever that bold move is for you, I want to give you permission to make big things happen because sometimes it's taking that next step that will lead you to a big opportunity. So do you want to know how leaders lead? What we learned today is that great leaders take one step at a time, and sometimes it's a very big step. So let's make some bold moves this week. All right. So coming up next on How Leaders Lead is Ken Langone, co-founder of The Home Depot and chairman of NYU Langone Health. I can sit here and wring my hands and say, woe is me, how bad it is. Or I can take a step back and say, okay, what's my share of making this thing work better than it is right now? What's my responsibility? And what can I do to help it? So come back again next week to hear our entire conversation. Thanks again for tuning in to another episode of How Leaders Lead, where every Thursday you get to listen in while I interview some of the very best leaders in the world. I make it a point to give you something simple on each episode that you can apply to your business so that you will become the best leader you can be. I'll see you next week. <laughs>